Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is part one of a three-part series, Looking Back to Look Forward. Welcome to episode 63, act one, Collective Field Building, recorded April 29th, 2023. About irrevocability Let's burn some bridges Earn some stitches And fight our own way free Cause the rules don't lie But they don't apply To people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Now they say it's all decided All divided, all laid out and the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives allowed are the only roads you can see. Just remember the walls were built to fall for old people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Hey, hey, TA Podians. Welcome to Teaching Artistry. This podcast is researched, recorded, and produced on the unceded lands, water, and air, stewarded by the Canarsie and Munsee Lenape peoples in what is colonially known as Brooklyn, New York. Thanks so much for listening and supporting this indie podcast. Invite your peeps, colleagues, and friends to join our global community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcast player. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Teaching Our Issue Podcast and head over to teachingourissue.org to access episodes, guest bios, e-zines, merch, and more. Happy Pride Month. This podcast and the TA Pod Squad are in solidarity with the queer community, especially with our Black, trans family and community members. I personally am part of the queer community and feel it's important that everyone is able to live their life out loud uh, in all the colors of the rainbow without fear of persecution, violence, oppression, and or erasure. And it helps me to think about uh, fighting hate and harmful mindsets and actions by being intentional around how I treat people within my community and how I engage model, interrogate my own uh, biases, uh, continue to learn and unlearn within my spheres of influence. And I'm constantly working to come from a place of listening, learning, abundance, love, and caring. Happy Pride Month, y'all. The Teaching Our History with Courtney J. Body team is excited to announce its partnership with Teaching Artists Guild or TAG, to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the TAG Awards. Episode 63 is a three-part series titled Looking Back to Look Forward. The Teaching RSU podcast is proud to support documenting an oral history that focuses on one, teaching artist skills origins, its merger with the Association of Teaching Artists, and 
tag now as a leader in the field of teaching artistry and its momentum toward the future. In this act, we zoom in on the very beginning of what became TAG and strategic projects that supported deepening the interconnectedness within the field of teaching artistry. This conversation features six amazing voices who will introduce themselves as the kickoff to this series. Here is episode 63, act one, collective field building. Hello everyone, welcome to Teaching Artistry Podcast. This podcast celebrates artist, culture, and equity. And we're here to spotlight our longtime partner and friend of the podcast, Teaching Artists Guild, uh, or you can call them TAG. And to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the TAG Awards, they have commissioned the Teaching Artistry Podcast to create an, a bit of an oral history in a series of conversations with field leaders engaged in the advocacy organization. For this panel, we are speaking with a group who were involved with, uh, from the creation or the start or some portion of the start, it sounds like, <laughs> um, and have had some, some uh, uh, contact with each other, engagement, collaboration in terms of making uh, Teaching Artists Guild come alive. And so let's go around the space. We'll start with Jean. Um, so let's go around and um, if you could share your name pronouns, if you wish to, to share that, um, your role within the arts and education field, and your role, either your current or your past former role with Teaching Artists Guild. Okay, hi. Um, well, yeah, I'm Jean Johnstone, and uh, I use she, her pronouns. Um, I was a former um, executive director of Teaching Artists Guild, um, and uh, go back to about 2013 with that organization. Now I um, work at UC Berkeley uh, and I teach a class in arts and cultural policy. Um, and I, I work as a policy analyst and, and uh, wear a couple of hats like that around cultural issues in the field. Hi, um, I'm Kai Freely Hedrick. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I started off way back when as a teaching artist and then spent about a decade as an arts administrator and then in a strange twist of fate uh, now work as a consultant. Um, I say at the intersection of learning and evaluation, change strategy and anti-oppression work, um, sometimes with arts organizations but not always these days. And I first, I think I was involved in some projects before then, but I think I first kind of formally joined TAG through the National Advisory Committee in 2015. I see some heads nodding, so that date might be right. <laughs> um, and then in 2021, uh, became the board president, which is the role I have now. Hey, I'm Lynn Johnson. I was one of the OG uh, founders of what was before before TAG was TAG. Um, and then when TAG became TAG, I was the membership director. Uh, I was on the executive committee before that, hired Jean Johnstone, which was kind of the best things ever happened to TAG, I think. And, um, and now uh, I do a number of things. Uh, I work primarily, uh, like Kai, as a consultant in the area of 
diversity, equity, inclusion, racial justice work. Um, I'm still a facilitator um, and I'm still slash again, a theater artist. Hi, I'm Miko Lee, she, her pronouns um, on Ohlone territory. And I, like Lynn, am an OG tag before tag was Tau person um, and have been on the advisory committee since the founding of tag and served for a stint as a co-executive director of TAG. And now um, I still sit on the National Advisory Committee. And now my position is the director of programs at Asian Americans for Civil Rights and Equality, working on narrative change and how um, AAPI people can be perceived in a new light. And I'm passing it on to Jess. Hello, everyone. I'm Jessica Mealy. I'm a program officer in the performing arts at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, which is based in Menlo Park, California. I am um, she, her, hers pronouns. I'm coming to you from my home in San Francisco on unceded Ohlone Ramatish land. And um, I, I guess I'm also one of the OGs at Teaching Artists Guild um, with Miko and Lynn. Um, we were on the first executive committee way back in the day and um, and it was exciting times. <laughs> it was exciting times. Now I am a funder of TAG uh, at the foundation and I will be at the foundation until my term ends this summer on August 3rd. And then um, I'll do something else and we'll see what that is. But I'm also a performer and a writer and uh, all, all sorts of other things that I'm trying to integrate <laughs> with my arts administration life right now. I'll pass it on to Eric. Thank you. I'm Eric Booth. That's he and him and his. And I guess I'm the oldest of the OGs, uh, officially the oldest living teaching artist. And I've been a practicing teaching artist and consultant, helping to build up the field of teaching artistry for 45 plus years. And I was around when the Association of Teaching Artists was coming together and I was working to help bring it to life. And I was around and kind of chipping in help wherever I could as TAG was coming to life. So I've just been a kind of helper around the edges uh, since the Pleistocene era. Excellent. Um, <clears throat> so I just want to mark you know, how I've been involved. I was on the board of, of ATA um, and have had many, many different people, including half the half of this panel on my podcast, um, uh, doing deep dives into their worlds. And, um, you know, this is this is a particular uh, I have a lot of affection for uh, tag. And um, I'm just going to name that I sat in rooms where we had lots of conversations before pre merger about how to start the conversations around merging. <laughs> um, and, and those were interesting conversations. Um, but I think this is the, the key here is how, how it all, um, how it all started in this land, um, and in this sort of universe. Uh, so let's, let's go into one of the OGs, Lynn, uh, I've asked this question before. I think I asked this of Jean, but I, I love hearing it from different perspectives. Um, so uh, Lynn, how did Teaching Artists Guild come about? Where where did it start? What was its origin? The only problem, I'm going to answer this question, but you're going to, you are going to hear a dog 
in the background. Okay. <laughs> so he's like right on time. Okay. So, um, yeah. So I remember it was probably 2003, four. Um, and I was working in San Francisco at um, a nonprofit called Community Network for Youth Development. And we were training youth workers. And I had, you know, I had been a teaching artist at that point, like for already for like 15 or 20 years. And so I was introduced to, um, to folks who were doing, working with teaching artists at three theater companies in the Bay Area. It was Berkeley Rep, um, Cal Shakes and Julia Morgan uh, Center for the Arts in Berkeley. And, um, and they had this conversation. They were like, we all work with the same teaching artists at these theater companies. So how do we support, how do we come together as three separate arts organizations to support the teaching artists that we collectively work with? Because as we know, teaching artists don't just were, I mean, sometimes, maybe now they do because of tag, but, but back in the day, you know, it wasn't like you worked exclusively for one organization. You worked, you gigged around, right? So it just was like a series of events. It started out as a series of events specifically around theater, um, teaching artists in Berkeley. That was kind of like how it all got started. Um, and uh, at that time, um, because of the, it wasn't um, Sabrina Klein who was the first person to start the conversation, but she definitely like took up the mantle at that time and really kind of took it forward into like, you know what, this could be a thing. Um, so like, let, like, let's make this like a thing where we're organizing teaching artists. That's when it became teaching artists organized, Tao at the time. Jess, weren't you working at Julie Morgan? You know, I, I was shadowing Sabrina because I moved to the Bay Area in 2005 and I was like arts education is the reason I am who I am because my mom is my was my first teaching artist um and and I didn't know anyone and through like a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend I met Sabrina Klein and she was like well I can't employ you but you can follow me for free <laughs> so that's how I that's how I met Sabrina and that's how I so I got involved in the at the Julie Morgan when I was before I landed at Performing Arts Workshop in San Francisco. Jess, that is wild. I did not know that story. That is so funny. I think I was working at Berkeley Rep at the time, which is how I got pulled in um, and and just started the conversation. And I actually remember when Eric was brought out, I just remember, I can't remember where it was located, but it was in this room and there was a bunch of us huddled in there. And Eric, uh, and I remember Sabrina introduced Eric as, here is the father of, art, of teaching artistry. I completely <laughs> remember that and I I was I was so starstruck by meeting Eric Booth because I had I had read your book before I met you I own I still own it somewhere and um and I'm not sure how I got how I got uh introduced to it but I like read it from cover to cover and then when I became part of this thing and Sabrina was like you get to meet Eric Booth I was like oh my god it was like a big deal <laughs> y'all are real sweet I gotta say that uh one thing I want to chip in is as Lynn described the impulse to really make Tao become something to support local teaching artists. 
that was the same impulse that started the Association of Teaching Artists, ATA, way back in, I think it was 1983. This sense of, we got all these teaching artists in New York State. Can't we do something to like support them, to like bring them together? It wasn't really any more informed than that. But as you described, Lynn, there was this sense that somehow being connected could really support the growth of the field. And so that's what launched ATA back in, I think, 83. Wow. And, and you know, that that's just making me think about how many networks there are now across the country. You've got, what, Teaching Artists of the Mid-Atlantic, um, and I'm sure there are other networks that I'm not, I don't necessarily know um, about. So let's just talk about, like, so you've got a, uh, Association of Teaching Artists in 1983, this this, you know, group of people who are like, we need to find ways to support our, our local teaching artists in the Berkeley area. Where did it go from there? How did it evolve towards being um, Teaching Artists Guild? I recall a meeting at Miko's house with lots of delicious food on the table. And we were talking about how this was about, like, we need to unify the field in terms of, like, teach pay equity was an issue, um, teaching artists being able to carry their credibility and their expertise um, from job to job and place to place as they move. There were all these issues that seemed to be that, and I would I would phrase as as a former labor organizer, I would phrase as like labor and workforce issues, and um, and we had toyed with the idea of the name guild, but it seemed like a big deal to change the name. And I think at one point over bagels, Mika was like, "You guys, let's just call it Teaching Artists Guild." <laughs> And we, and I remember thinking like, yeah, okay, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that being, I remember being very inspired to have it be something that was of and from and led by teaching artists, because up until that point, you know, it had come from the arts organizations, right? So these big players, and they were like creating all the programming and all that kind of stuff, which was great. But I was like, don't we need, because I was representing teaching artists, and I'm like, don't we need something where teaching artists themselves, like ourselves can um, talk about, here's what we need, here's what, you know, here's what we, how do we organize around getting what we need to do this work and still sustain ourselves? Um, so Guild felt right. I remember, I, and I remember the food. I do remember that food at Miko's, absolutely. Which is, I don't remember anything, but I remember that. And I think it was brunch. Yes, I think that's why. Yes. It was a brunch meeting. Yes. And, um, yeah. And at one point, like, cause we had so many amazing partners. I remember at that time too, I remember going through the process of rebranding and I'm so glad that the logo is still the logo. Cause like that became the logo in like 2013, I think when we started rebranding and picking those colors and we had worked with, um, Dia Penning, Dia Penning at one point was on, she was working, I think for the city of San Francisco in the arts department and her wife was the graphic designer that created our rebrand. Do you remember that? Oh my God, I forgot that. <laughs> I her wife, her whose room. name is also Jess. Yes, it was also Jess. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, and it was, it felt so, uh, it felt so like important. Um, Cause up until that point, the like look and feel of Tao was like 
mm. like, you know, it was kind of like not quite, it didn't match how we felt. Uh, so to, to rebrand as tag and have this new clean modern logo that still exists and like, um, and we've grown into is really exciting. It was really exciting at the time. Yeah. The, the, Adoption of the guild idea, and I remember like furiously googling, "Can we take the name guild? Does it mean something different if we say we're a guild?" Um, but that was really a transformative process in recognizing that we were, as Lynn was saying, by and for our people. Because at the time, Tao teaching artists organized, which was weirdly culturally appropriation strangeness around that name, um, and honestly, organized teaching artists organized what? <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, at the time, it, a lot of the work was also based around teaching artists hiring organizations. There was actually a name we used to use called Tahoes because we love the acronyms, teaching artists hiring organizations to try and get them to pay for teaching artists so that we could provide benefits for teaching artists. And so it was really, we when we took the name Guild, we were flipping the switch to say, no, we are focusing on teaching artists and the people that we serve and what we are about, as opposed to the hiring organizations. That was really a transformational period for us to really think differently. And we also went as Lynn was saying, originally Sabrina Klein, with the help of the late Belinda Taylor, had really kind of led Teaching Artists Organize, and then they left, and then it was Lynn and me and Jess and uh, Mary and Mary Sutton and Dave Mayer, and we were like, oh my gosh, we all have full-time jobs, and we're going to hold this plate uh, how do we do this? And so we were doing this. We actually just kind of created this shared leadership situation where we were all trying to hold the bag at the same time. And it was complicated because all of us were working um, and how we how we manage that. I still can't totally remember that. It, we picked different people's houses and businesses to have meetings at. We were trying to still organize big events like job fairs and other things. Um Jess or Lynn, talk a little bit more about how crazy that time was. It was crazy. I think also, you know, we want we had when we germinated that idea of the guild as opposed to teaching artists organized, we envisioned a scope that was far bigger than what teaching artists organized had ever been, which was really Bay Area focused, at most California focused, because they had funding from the State Arts Council, California Arts Council, they had seed funding. And that required a California focus. But we were really clear, I think, from those early days that this needed to be a national thing, connecting with other teaching artists, associations and guilds, and like led and networks across the country. And so that was our ambition as soon as we started using the name Guild, and it marked a change of scope for TAG, which at first was just an ambition and eventually came to fruition in a way that was really exciting. Um, but um, but that those early days like were marked by a push and pull between like, okay, our funding is statewide. Our original framing was Bay Area and statewide. And, uh, but we think this field needs something that's much bigger and, um, and more uh, and makes those connections and um, so there was a tension there with that, with our kind of first biggest funder and figuring out how we negotiate that. That, that resonates uh, having been on the board because we were funded by the state 
Arts Council. And so, so much was focused on New York State, but the understanding that there was a national need was huge, but it, it became like a a big tug of war of like what what how can we actually serve on both on both the state level and the national level um so from my my view um i think the first time i heard of of, of teaching arts guild was at the national guild conference in chicago i think it was in chicago where like eric had reached out to a bunch of people who do work with teaching arts was like are you coming to this we're gonna have this like very specific specific focus of looking at professionalizing the field of teaching artistry. And he seemed to like call together. So that was the first time I met Jean. I, I can't remember if anybody else was there. I feel like Jess, you were there too, but I don't remember. So I, I can't remember if it was the 2012 or 2013 conference, but I want to move us forward into like, how did you, how did you, I feel like maybe it was that the catalyst or cause we kind of skipped over like when Jean was hired, but so we could either go back there or go into like some of the resources that got developed and, and the origins of that. Uh, Courtney, I can give you just a little of backstory that'll get the start of those uh, projects, uh, which was for several years, I had been complaining to the guild that they said they were a home for teaching art. This is the te- uh, the National Guild, not the Teaching Artists Guild, the National Guild, that they had been saying they're a home for teaching artists, but they weren't doing bupkis for us. And so I was bitching and they would sort of, you know, they'd have like a few workshops that were sort of teaching artists-like, but who wanted to pay all that money to go there and then have to pay to be there and pay to register just for a, like a couple of workshops? And so I said, could we try an experiment where we make it cheap for teaching artists to come and we actually accomplish something during the three days of the conference and we're going to meet a whole bunch of hours and still have some time to go to workshops. And so the group that gathered, which was an impressive group, like lots of really smart people, gave uh, some 20 hours during that first conference to number one, select projects they wanted to work on and then set out to actually accomplish them during the course of the conference. And we really only got as far as starting the TA Manifesto, the pay rate calculator, the asset map, and another one, the rubric for uh, qualities of what makes for a teaching artist friendly city. And so we had good intentions to finish them, but we barely got started. However, people stepped up and said, we're going to keep going on these. We're going to keep developing them. And I think the first one to come to fruition was the manifesto. Adam Johnston kind of grabbed that one and said, I'm going to drive this one for a year of wordsmithing. God love all of you who spent a year wordsmithing the teaching artist manifesto to get agreement from across our wide field on words that stand for the whole field. And then the others, I'll leave it to others to describe the development of the asset map and the calculator, uh, how they came into being from that kind of well-intentioned but disorganized start. (laughs) Yeah, and I I think another project was the Teaching Arts Pathways tool, which came into the new victory. But yeah, you did that one. I was just going to say that. I remember you, Courtney... And Lindsay being really involved in that. And like you took that really far. 
you you out in the world and it i still do it in my in my grad class <laughs> and have been trying to figure out you know we we couldn't get it to where we wanted it like where it is now so i'm feeling like there's another project that we could be working on to get get these things um onto your website in some way can i back up for a second because i remember 2013 in chicago and then 2014 in la in LA was when it was all the stuff that you're talking about, Eric, right? Because I remember, I remember Jean, because Jean, were you in Chicago? No. So you came between those two things? I want to say I came between those two things. And I, boy, you all wrapped me in. I remember this is late 2012 or early 2013 at a meeting uh, in Berkeley, at Berkeley Rep. Um, and that was my first introduction to you all. And I was hook, line, and sinker. I had recently moved uh, back from overseas. You had a baby. Didn't you have a baby? I had a newborn baby with me. I will never forget. You walked in with that baby who's now like in college probably. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, she thinks. <laughs> <laughs> no. Lynn, I do remember you had the you had the stickers, the tag stickers and buttons in 2013. And that was like a big like coming out party for tag nationally. And um and that was where we had a lot of conversations that turned into these projects. And the first notes that I can find from Adam are like because the projects came out of that and then there were working groups on those projects and some of us were from tag some of us were from ata some of us were from other entities across the country it looks like after the 2013 conference those working groups worked and then like all the the culmination of those projects happened in 2014 at the national guild conference does that sound right yeah that's that's right that sounds more or less right because we hired um, Adam at some point to take the lead on organizing um, the rest of the organizations in, in the field uh, around the asset map. Yeah, where did that money come from? Do you know where the money came from in 2013? Because it was because that was the that was the team. Like because then I came on as a membership. So then I came on staff after being in this kind of like unpaid working group with Jess and, Jess and Miko. I came on staff with you. We hired you as the executive director and then Adam as this project manager. And then, cause I remember it was like the funnest thing that we were Johnson, Johnstone and Johnston. Remember that was really fun. Oh yeah. Yeah. We needed some t-shirts there. And then when we showed up in LA, it was like this whole big thing. So, so I don't remember where that money came from, but that to me, that was, a, that was the pivotal moment right there in 2013-14 and so that's what I wanted to make sure that I don't know how that happened I wanted to give credit to that funder but I'm not sure who the funder was it looks like Julie Fry made a grant in 2011 I don't know if that supported some of the work um sorry that's Hewlett Foundation that's my predecessor at the Hewlett Foundation okay so let's go into some of the some of those resources that were um initiated at the at those conferences um so um jean um and or jess or both um you want to tell us what the teaching artist manifesto is which by the way i utilize in my teaching artist course it's like number one i actually want to pass this one to you jess because um that came around um that came about um right before 
uh, or maybe during uh, my introduction to tag. And um, I just picked up this gorgeous thing that everybody had developed uh, and lifted it up with, with tag and shared it. Um, but I wasn't really part of the, the creation of that. Very happy to talk about the other projects, however. I mean, I'm looking at some notes of which I have no memory, but it looks like Kai and Eric were involved in those conversations as well um, of like which messages to put forward, how to talk about what a teaching artist is. I mean, there were a lot of things that we hashed out in the process of that manifesto. Um, and, uh, and a lot of things that we said, like, we're not gonna hash out, we're just going to leave them here. And, and part of uh, the beauty of the manifesto is it sparks conversations with people about what, uh, what a teaching artist is and, uh, and what teaching artistry could be. I don't know, Eric and, and Kai, if you remember that process at all. Tina Lapadula was in there too. I think she was still at Arts Core. And I think Nicole Ripley. I can't believe I remember that. <laughs> yeah. I remember it as trying to find agreement and these pockets of areas where it was hard to get agreement, where some people felt strongly that it should be another way and working around them, working with them. And Adam's diplomacy skills were kind of astonishing to me. Uh, and he was doing all this by email. Uh, with occasional calls. Remember calls? Remember phone calls? Uh, as opposed to Zoom calls? And uh, eventually he wrangled it, and then he had the idea to give it this kind of unconventional graphic look, this sort of uh, uh, piece together, uh, and it that's really helped give it an identity. But there was a real sense of accomplishment as it was coming down the home stretch. I remember being so um, honored to host it uh, and to find a graphic designer to uh, lay this out and really um, make it kind of a, a, a gift back out to the field. Um, and I just remember the excitement of like, oh boy, it can live on our site and we're going to share it with everybody. And this is so cool. And, you know, getting it printed and, and um, uh, yeah, it was a, it was kind of an exciting time because it, it helped lay the the groundwork um it sort of helped us build our own context for some of the projects that came after that um in in shaping our own identity i did have wind up finding i'm looking at a also old google folders and a draft a national ta manifesto draft here in my in my stuff um so i so there's a lot of things here that I think I wrote, but I I, rem I remember uh, um, two things about that process. One, being really clear about the vastness of teaching artists. Because I remember kind of inheriting from the old like teaching artists organized days. It was there was so much focus on arts integration in schools, and that was it. And and recognizing like like teaching artistry goes way beyond that. So I have a thing here that's like teaching artists currently and historically have used art making and arts center learning to make individual and community change. We work in education, community, neighborhood development, civic participation, business, healthcare. So like, it was like really wanting to, to make it beyond just uh, school-based arts integration. And then also I remember thinking like, it's really hard to create a manifesto by committee 
Like, because it it's like, how do we, because manifesting needs to be big and powerful and bold and wild and audacious. And it, and you, obviously when you work in collaboration with committee, things kind of water down a little bit. Um, and so, but I think what ended up being the final, especially because of the idea to do the graphic poster, which I still have also in my life, um, you know, it also, it, bring, it brought back the boldness, which was really really cool, really powerful. And we had those postcards at the Guild Conference in 2014, right? That was like our big deadline to debut the manifesto. And I am impressed, Lynn, given your point, at how fiery it kind of still is. <laughs> given that. I remember the same thing, Lynn, like that, like the, the conversations that for me, like were about making visible, like how complex teaching artistry is and how like much variety there is and how many spaces teaching artists are working in and how many different roles they're playing in addition to teachers and artists. And, um, and then, yeah, that sort of challenge of then like, how do you get that in a poster? <laughs> right. And Lynn, even though it does, uh, it is hard to write by committee. It feels like it's been written by a collective voice because it incorporates so many aspects and so many different parts of the field. And I think that's why it resonates so much. I would agree with that. And year after year, I share with folks who are in grad school emerging into this field and to be able to see, I think what resonates the most for them is seeing all the different places or communities that they can work and, and that sort of understanding that it's way beyond a school setting um, and that we're still, we can still add to where those places can be over time and that it's just, it's not, this is it, right? It's, it is expansive. And that, that's what I love about teaching artistry is that it is complex, it's nuanced and it's ever growing and we can keep finding where the edges are. And then once we find an edge, it just, it, there's more, <laughs> there's more places we could go. I'm gonna keep us moving forward. Uh, let's go into, we, I heard, I feel like somebody said something around like how teaching, we talked about hiring practices, we talked about, you know, what are some needs for teaching artists? And we know that pay equity is, a, is a, always a constant uh, issue. And so when the idea of creating a pay rate calculator, what was so, like at the time, it was so crazy and wonderful and innovative. Um, who, uh, Kai, can you talk about that project and what, what does it do and how, you know, how people can be utilizing it now? Yeah. I'm going to ask for help in remembering <laughs> the origins too. Um, and especially, I think at first it kind of emerged as a dream and then Ted gave it a home. Um, so definitely, Jean, if you could talk about that. Um, uh, so I think like it began, so it was the 2015 Guild Conference in Philadelphia, right? It was the, where we did the Teaching Artists pre-conference. And I think building on that first round of projects that produced things like the manifesto, um, we took, there was a similar approach, right? In that collaborative planning where people got to pitch projects that then folks who attended the pre-conference could kind of select into a working group um, and have a conversation about it and see where it went. Um, and so Lindsay, it's funny, I haven't said her last name in years, Lindsay bueller Go help me out, yeah. <laughs> um, Lindsay and I had been connected, um, I don't know, a couple, years earlier because we were both working at organizations that did kind of family arts programming and then stayed in touch and stayed friends and i think we were having a lot of conversations about um 
like teaching artists pay and pay equity generally. And so we wanted to have like bring that or host a conversation around that at the pre-conference. Um, I remember that we brought payday candy bars to bribe people to come talk to us because we were worried that it was going to be like too intense a subject and people were going to go for something else. Um, and we got a really great group. Um, it was a mix of teaching artists and administrators. And we had started off the conversation with, we just put up these kind of profiles on the wall of teaching artists at different stages of their career. And we asked folks to write up but kind of anonymously, I guess if you didn't look at each other, it was anonymous, um, you know, how much they thought each of those folks should make. And I remember the very first number that went up on the like first chart paper was $100,000 a year. Um, and it like that was a starting point for the conversation. And an administrator was immediately said, well, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to make $100,000 a year. Um, and we, you know, that kind of first, um, I guess, both tension when you're talking about pay rates, but also I think what it illuminated, right, is that it's not just a teaching artist issue, right? Like the pay problem is a field issue. Um, and so we we kind of made it through the intro. And I think our idea initially had been to look at some of the data that was out there already about like teaching artists pay and folks were really um, generous in sharing some of their sort of personal pay rates and their organization's pay rates. We kept it, we kind of agreed that it would be private within our circle. And honestly, like it got us to a real depressing place. <laughs> um, and so this idea of starting from where we were at didn't feel like it had a lot of energy in the conversation. And I remember there was a moment where we flipped and we were like, what if we stop talking about where we're at and we start talking aspirationally about where we'd like to be? Um, and we started talking about living wage, equitable wage. Um, I had been relying on the Economic Policy Institute's family budget calculator for a f um, some grant writing recently and so i shared that with the group and i remember i think it was jacob winterstein or winterstein um who kind of said like wouldn't it be amazing if there was something like this for teaching artists to generate like the rates that we should be paid because the, the family budget calculator draws on cost of living data in different like metropolitan areas in the u.s um to generate kind of um what it what it costs to live there based on the major spending categories month to month. Um, and then there was just like suddenly this pause and then there was a ton of energy around that. People were like, yes. And I remember, I think we even started trying to sketch something out in like an Excel spreadsheet at the conference. Um, and there was a couple of folks who really wanted to take the work forward. And Jean helped me out. I can't remember when we connected, but I, like TAG felt like kind of an obvious partner. Um, and then really uh, was able to kind of create a home for the work and like shepherd folks through that process to get to the calculator that's on the website today. I remember, you know, scheming and dreaming um, around this at that conference and being so excited about it and wanting to um, bring it forward uh, and trying to figure out, okay, well, what could that be? Um, and so, um, I mean, we kind of, we, I, I kind of took it and ran with it. Um, somebody brought in this concept of uh, EPI and I checked out their stuff and I said, oh my God, this is exactly what we ought to be doing. Um, how do we build this? Um, and I contacted Economic Policy Institute and uh, they graciously allowed us to use their data as a base. And then I worked with you all in the working group to develop those questions further. What can we lay over this about um, teaching artists? How can we um, talk about the various um, 
kind of levels within the career um, that can be associated with different pay rates. How do you graduate up? What's the ladder? These kinds of things um, to uh, to create a more holistic picture. Um, and it is, I think it remains aspirational, but I remember a lot of um, the kind of fear and consternation around this too, um, when people go to it. And I think to this day, you know, you put in your information and it's sort of shocking how much money really you ought to be making and are not. Um, and that's threatening for a hiring organization potentially, right? Or it's, it's um, cause it's a challenge. Uh, and we're not there yet, but to to collectively realize, oh, this is reasonable. This is a living wage. This is, you know, something that um, we ought to be able to attain. Now, how do we work together to get there and to raise everybody up? Right. So it's not uh, administrators looking at it going, well, I don't make that. Well, you ought to be, too. So how do we get there? I think we had a lot of debate about whether to provide a number that was like realistic to be paid or um, I guess aspirational is the word we settled on for describing it. Um, but we really like, especially in the conversations, you know, not even getting into what's a professional wage or, you know, equitable wage, but just thinking about living wage, like it just felt really important that that should be a baseline that we don't drop below. Right. We're not going to water that down. And I just wanted to add to the buzz that happened at that conversation in Philly, because sitting around those round tables in a hotel conference room, I just remember teaching artists saying, well, how much do you make? And somebody said, well, I make $35 an hour, or I make $40. And it was so different. Everybody's baseline of what they were earning was so different. And there was this, this energy rose up in the around that table saying, what? How come you make that? Who do you work for? And that was really this kind of rage, really, of around labor and the work that people are doing and how it's being valued. And that was like fuel to the, oh, this is really a critical thing that we need to have for the field. And people use it now. I mean, I've heard so many people say, well, I use it as a negotiation point, the pay rate calculator, when I'm going to get work. I say, this is what I should be earning. Tell me um, how you can match this. And if you can't match this exact number, what else can you provide that can be able to help me, you know, sustain myself? So I love that it was this thing that grew out of this, like, beginning of a conversation into this fire of interest and then grew into something that we knew was necessary for people to sustain themselves in their daily life. I remember a number of folks also sharing stories about like, I can work for this wage because, and then they'd explain a way that they were like <laughs> subsidized, right? By like either a partner who was a lawyer or something. Um, and, and us having like really hard conversations about, well, what does that mean then? Like for the, like, sustainability for the field, right? And who can be a teaching artist long-term. And that's pretty messed up, right? Especially as like more and more conversations about like social justice are like working their way into the center of the field, like that, it, they can't not include this conversation. Absolutely, it's a massive equity issue. Definitely, absolutely. And and I, that that is leading me to think about um, while you know, the tool itself is incredibly useful for that negotiation. I'm just wondering, does it come with any supplemental materials to support advocating for oneself in terms of that ne negotiation? It used to. I don't, I haven't looked at the site in a while. Miko, sorry, go ahead. 
Oh, I was just going to say, I know that Tama, Teaching Artists of the Mid-Atlantic, developed additional tools to go with it, that they actually did trainings for how you utilize the pay rate calculator to then go in and use that as a negotiation tool. And they led um, internal like circles talking about how each person did it. So I think it's that's kind of grown organically in different communities, but it would be a good thing to add on to it with some of those resources. It's a great idea. Or some like examples from folks who have used it in practice. I'd love to have that on the website. Like this is how I used it as an advocacy tool, not just teaching artists, right? But also like arts organizations that, you know, cause it keeps going up, right? Would love to pay their teaching artists more, but are struggling with how their funding comes in and like, how can they use it to advocate to funders, right? To change their funding practices, to allow for more money to go into salary. Exactly. And that's one of the things we explained, I think, early on on the site uh, with the release of that is that, you know, this is for everybody to use, um, you know, bring it to your funders. What was such a huge change here was prior to that, teaching artists just didn't talk about it. They just kind of took what they got and assumed that was pretty much how it was going to be. And it was really the emergence of that tool that empowered teaching artists to begin conversations with their hiring organizations to say, you know, hey, wait a minute, let's look at a little objective information here and let's have a conversation. So it was a real game changer in the, the long arc of that issue. And to the grant makers, Jess actually had us do a presentation at Grant Makers for the Arts in, was it Detroit? What city was that in? <laughs> I think it was Detroit. And I, I just, I'm, just, I'm wondering, I mean, I thought that for, uh, we really tried to make a space for grant makers to understand how important it was to center teaching artists and to provide pay equity. And just, I'm wondering from you as a funder's perspective, how do you think that played? I, I mean, I know the Heinz Foundation came up and said, wow, I never thought of it this way. This is really interesting. But I'm wondering just for you have, have, has it has impact for other funders, do you think? I think, hmm, I mean, among those funders who, there's a small community of funders nationally who fund in arts education and talk to each other. And <laughs> it's a small group and there's an affinity group at um, Grant Makers for Education um, that I used to chair. And there's, uh, and uh, not so much at GIA anymore, Grant Makers in the Arts anymore. Um, and among those funders, there's a lot of interest in the in the calculator, and um, and it sparked. Uh, we had a conversation actually among that group just a couple of weeks ago about teaching artist pay um, because the Bartel Foundation out of Philadelphia, who does has a really terrific trauma informed um, training for teaching artists and also provides direct support for teaching artists had done a survey of teaching artists in the Philadelphia region on, and a lot of it was around pay rates. And so the calculator came up. I don't know that anyone's using it like explicitly in terms of making grant decisions um, or, um, but I, I do know that they're using it in terms of having conversations with their grantees who are usually teaching artists hiring organizations. I have a colleague who funds also in the environmental education space and um, similar issues there with folks who are working with young people in out of school and in school environments in that field um, around pay and pay equity. So I know it's been used among a small group of funders, but it could, you know, this is the kind of thing that needs constant visibility and TAG is so small 
despite how big it appears and despite the um, the network of people that truly is national that are involved in TAG one way or the other, the administrative capacity of TAG is really limited. And um, this is the kind of thing that could use ongoing visibility for sure. Here, here. We also did try and get um, state agencies to include artist pay rate as a line item um, when they're seeking proposals. And a couple of states did do that after you know multiple presentations to them, but just to really highlight when we're talking about arts education that teaching artists are the people who make that happen. And so putting that line item to say, well, how much do you pay your teaching artists so that it's a separate um, budgetary requirement is something that we're working on for a little bit. How much do you pay and for what? I remember that was the other big piece of the conversation actually from the beginning, which was like, not just the need for looking at the number, but like transparency in the process, right? <laughs> because how people calculate like their hourly rate or session rate or whatever includes like it's apples and kumquats. I will say though, in California, AB5 really kind of raised this conversation again because a number of teaching artists hiring organizations were either being audited or were in fear of being audited for how they classify teaching artists. I know New York has similar legislation. There's some question as to whether there will be federal legislation around um, classification of uh, independent contractors. So it's a, I mean, it's an ongoing issue and there's just such little, um, no, HR expertise and knowledge among hiring organizations, um, uh, even to make sure that they're within the letter of the law and how they are hiring teaching artists. Um, and pay equity is a kind of piece of that conversation. So I just did, I just did a, like if I were a contractor uh, uh, for in New York and I, like the number that has come up is a, a, a hearty six-figure number that I I can like like almost guarantee that very few people are making <laughs> as working as a teaching artist in New York City uh, and potentially the whole state. Um, so, but that but that number is really helpful because there are lots of organizations that do pay um, teaching artists at different rates for different types of work, um, and I feel like the hourly rate actually we are we're in good standing but we could we were constantly having to advocate internally um towards you know just from the bottom line around that around like we we need to make sure that we're constantly um looking at raises or, um on a regular basis to keep up with inflation to keep up with the cost of living all those pieces that you know what what this all ultimately comes down to really is that the nonprofit world which is the bulk of where um, hiring organizations um, uh, work with teaching artists that that is a, that industrial complex is um, fraught and and the conversations around like funders and you know pay equity around people who are working you know as an employee a full-time employee for an organization and a part-time employee which in New York State and it seems like other states you if a teaching artist or any anybody um, who's working for you is being trained um, in terms of the philosophies or the other kinds of works that you're doing, um, 
they have to be on a W team. They have to be. And so that was, that's something that I know has shifted over time very consistently either before that law came into place. And absolutely you are in violation if you are training your teaching artists and still paying them on a 1099. That's not okay. Okay. Let's move forward. Y'all you, I love that you were making my job very easy very, very easy because you're so good at talking to each other. <laughs> so you don't, you don't even need me here. Um, but let's talk about the TA asset map. Um, that That is something that I know has really, like was such a radical idea when it was launched. And, and it seems like it, like it took a long time to get it to like, to be a thing. And then it was a lot of effort to try and get people to actually count themselves um, so that we could have a better understanding of who, who's doing this work across the nation. Um, I'm not, I can't remember who's going to talk about this. So I'm just going to say who would like to talk about this. I can jump in on that one and, and y'all please pitch in because this is another, you know, massive collective effort. Um, but one that I feel very, very close to still, um, I know in 2013, um, when I came on, um, one of the things coming out of the, um, the manifesto was really the sense of, okay, who are we? This is field building here. We've got, you know, we, we've identified some labor and workforce issues. We've got problems here, problems there, excitement, um, all of these things we're trying to kind of solidify. Um, who are we talking about? And we thought, well, let's find out. Let's, let's try to do some kind of census here. And it started off um, just as a really simple spreadsheet. Um, and, you know, there were discussions about, well, what do we want to know? Okay, you know, your name, where you are, what kind of um, art form are you are you working in? Are you teaching in? Um, who do you work for, maybe? Um, and some just sort of some basic um, categories. And then at some point, um, I was doing a lot of research into this and um, uh, trying to figure out, well, where would this live? What does it look like? How is it useful? What kind of information are we trying to get here? And uh, the idea of a actual map being able to, to locate each other, not just know, oh, okay, we've got this number of people working in this field in this state, but to be able to look at a picture and really explore uh, where people are and what they're doing um, began to develop. And so um, uh, I think at that point, it was uh, Kenny and I who were really, um, you know, steering the ship of TAG. And um, we tried to um, get funding for this. We got we got some initial funding for it, um, but had a really hard time getting enough to get the thing launched and finally said, well, let's just try. We just have to try to build this. So we began internally to just learn on our feet and make this thing, which is also what we did with the pay rate calculator, by the way. <laughs> um, like, all right, I don't know how to program, but let's find out. Um, and so we, we began making this thing. And of course it's gone through many iterations. Um, and, uh, uh, I think it's a, I think it's a fabulous thing that also needs, um, you know, needs usage to, um, be as useful as it can be to the field. Um, but what would we, what would we have without it? 
you got to know who you are. I remember early conversations too, Jean, if you were like talking about it as a tool for like if teaching artists had to move, right? Or move, like it could be helpful just to be able to understand like in this new place where you're going, like who's doing work like you are, who's hiring, like something where you didn't have to like troll through something as wide ranging as LinkedIn. Like you could kind of see the community you were entering. Absolutely. That was a big one for me because I had just, I had been working overseas as a teaching artist for several years. And when I came back, this is one of the reasons I was so excited to find TAG at that time. Um, I didn't know how to jump back in. I didn't know who to contact. I didn't know what the local, you know, as a theater teaching artist, um, who was hiring where, how, who didn't. It was just um, after just a few years away, um, it felt like a whole new world. Uh, and I didn't know how to get back in. And I know a lot of people faced similar challenges. Eric, I'm going to pass it to you to talk about, um, you know, the fact that ultimately the reason why we're we're having this conversation is we're celebrating 25 years of the TAG Awards, which originally were the ATA Awards or the Association of Teaching Artists Awards. So um, we'll hear about the merger in a different group, but can you talk a little bit about the origins? You start. You, you initially said that they started in 1983, but what more can you tell us about ATA and more specifically about the awards? Yeah, the awards uh, took some years to develop. Uh, ATA beginning as a sort of networking website and connecting and seeing what it can accomplish. Uh, Dale Davis kind of guiding what we could try and do. And then the idea for awards came up, it may have been, I'm guessing, 10 years in, uh, and it was connected to the Common Ground Conference, which was a, a New York State statewide coming together of all of the, the people with a stake in it. And the awards became like a party event. It was, it was I think it even was a cocktail party, as I seem to remember, colorful drinks in hands as we were celebrating whoever won that year. And there was such a, a sense of communion and uh, the people who were getting honored in those early days, uh, you know, Richard Lewis and Barbara Fisher and Richard Spiegel had been long time in the, in the groundwork of this field and had never really imagined there was something that might honor that work. So there was something spectacularly exciting and it felt like a party celebration. And so that's, it kind of rose organically as an idea to celebrate since nobody else was celebrating us in that kind of a way uh, for us to celebrate those who we really wanted to honor. And then to see that carry on and grow. And as TAG has, uh, taken over the awarding process, it feels like it has organically and steadily grown both in stature and in meaning. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Um, I, the first one I remember being at was, um, I think Maxine Green had been uh, awarded because um, sometimes they would t they would pair it up with another another institution um, and their their final celebration. So there was always a party. Then it became more of a fundraiser at a certain point when I was on the board. Um, and and I love that it you know originally it was like really there was about a legacy moment. 
um, in these awards and then about being able to sort of honor people who are doing interesting work. So that's where the innovation or the right the innovative um, award and the idea of allyship and solid, being in solidarity and supporting those in the, in the field of teaching artistry. So I just love like how that the scope over time had grown and now it feels very, yeah, it feels very elevated. Um, but I remember um, still being a part of ATA and um, when we when we sort of uh, broadened out or expanded the amount of awards awards and really saying like people should nominate folks, that wasn't that was a new level where it wasn't just about like who's been in the field for a long time and all those people deserve those so i'm not saying that but the idea of other people or people within the field being able to nominate folks who they think are doing incredible work and should be recognized for that work and i think that that's a, a wonderful thing that that's continuing it sounds like with um but uh now that it's a tag awards um so in terms of like um the conversation between ATA and, and again, this is sort of pre-merger moment, like um, were there any conversations between the two? I feel like I could probably answer that question too, but like uh, was there any sort of relationship between the two organizations prior to the merger conversations? I know really early on, like those National Guild conferences, there was a, like, how can we work together um, particularly around the asset map, because when we were talking about like we want to know who's working where, what entity, what resources are where, New York and California are kind of like the two big pieces of that picture nationally, and then um, and then uh, other affinity groups across the country. So knowing that ATA was an established um, teaching artist organization, I know at TAG, we had talked about how we can connect with them and work with them, um, but it didn't really come to fruition for a couple of years. There was some crossover too, I think, in the folks who were involved in both. So wasn't Tina Lapidula on the board at ATA at, some, at one point? And was then on the National Advisory Committee for TAG after that? Not sure if there were other folks. Eric, when I came to you, um, when we first established that um, National Advisory Board, you were one of the, the first people we invited on and uh, being really cognizant of, of um, trying to, to uh, generate more crossover between these various organizations, um, kind of in those early stages. And that seemed a really um, uh, soft way to begin um, those conversations and so useful. And I would add just one thing. What was interesting about that neutral space uh, was it was about getting stuff done. And instead of being an organization that's, you know, worried about membership and providing services for membership, really the only identity of those working groups was about making stuff happen that's going to help the field. And it's a good reminder for all of us that people come together around making stuff happen that benefits the field. And it's really out of that energy that I think the synergy for the merger uh, was born. We've been talking about that internally too, actually, um, at TAG recently. It's interesting, like committee structures versus like project-based structures and yeah, the different kinds of energy people bring to them. But like also, I think one of the really powerful things that TAG's done over the last, I don't even know the number of years, but like it's made a home right, for projects that may have started outside of tech, but like needed a home to be 
like to live long term. Yeah. And I was going to say something similar where, uh, you know, I appreciated what Eric, what you just said about the idea of like getting getting shit done, <laughs> like focusing on a, something that's going to move us forward as opposed to feeling like you have to hold tight to something feels much more organic to, to the creative life, the creative, the creativity, the, um, the advocacy work that I think we all are engaged in or want to be engaged in. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to... No, it's all right. I think that that's really germane to what I wanted to say, which I might be stepping in it, but I feel like, like the nonprofit arts education field um, is, is a pretty competitive one, even though people don't want to say that it is competitive. And there was definitely a tension both in tag and something I sensed in ATA with like the founders feeling like this is a thing that I founded and you're my competitor and I, <laughs> I don't want the thing that I founded to be subsumed by a competitor. And that's, I think that's uh, just something that the nonprofit model, my own personal opinion is the nonprofit model kind of supports that kind of, that kind of orientation um, for an entity to continue on being. But, but for something like TAG, which is like, which is about field building, which is about network connecting, it's a really different entity. And so both organizations needed to mature beyond that initial phase of like, this is the thing I founded for this purpose to recognize that they had uh, the, there was a, a large, a purpose that was larger than either one or organization and that they could only achieve that by being connected to each other. And eventually that led to a merger, but it was like that getting out of that, like kind of initial tension, um, that, that needed to happen in order for them to, for us to get to a merger. And that really only happened through relationships that were built through projects of getting, getting stuff done, as Eric said. You didn't step in it. You just you just named it. Thank you um, for. I, I know I was avoiding it, but um, no, I really appreciate what you just said because that's the truth. Um, so so to that end, now that you know, there's a higher. We understand the higher purpose that it isn't about one individual or multiple individuals, but a collective. What would you say? And maybe we can go around. What would you say um, has been the impact to to this point um, of tag? I can say, I mean, I've, I think I've been um, the most, I've been disconnected from TAG longer than most people here. And, um, and it, and still to this day, like if I meet someone who's in the field at all, they're like, oh yeah, TAG. Like it's, it's amazing to me how kind of no matter who they are or like where they're from, if they're a teaching artist, or they work with teaching artists, they've at least heard of what's happening. Uh, they've heard of TAG. They feel like they're part of TAG, even though they can't necessarily describe what that means sometimes. Sometimes, they're, but they know that they're part of it, which is really cool. Um, you know, as someone who, um, my, yeah, as my job was membership director, and I thought a lot about like what it meant to be a member. And we went back and forth with like, do we charge? Do we not charge? Like, what are the benefits? Blah 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 blah, all that stuff. But like, and even with having that had that frame, I think it's very cool that people still feel like even without that official structure, people feel like, oh, I'm part of this. And I think that tag gave people 
an opportunity to feel like they're part of something. I love that. Um, I uh, haven't been actively involved. Um, I stepped down as the executive director um, in, I think, three years ago-ish. Maybe it's been longer. Um, so a little bit of distance. Um, but the biggest thing for me is I think that um, for all of the really cool things that I think I've, I've, um, I've seen TAG do and ATA and that I feel, you know, really excited about um, for having been involved with and so on. I think the biggest impact is that this field is acknowledging itself. We can look across the United States now, heck, internationally, and say, this is a thing. When I first started doing this, uh, maybe this is just California, um, but uh, I didn't know what the name was for what I was doing. And I think that was relatively common. You might stumble into this work and really love it, but not really know what is this thing. And um, we've helped together to name that, to grow that, to build that, uh, and can acknowledge ourselves as a community. So from there, we can go ahead and really get the rest of the work done that, that needs doing. I would toss in agreement that, in fact, there's for the first time, a national there, there, a flag. Uh, the reminder, of course, that small staff always historically punching way above its weight, uh, doing more, being more visible than seems plausible for the size of its staff budget, and the always poignant recognition that the vast majority of teaching artists in the U.S. are still not connected to TAG. You know, they're out there doing their work. God love them. But we haven't found the way to really, uh, really make the, the, the coming together that is going to lie in the future. But uh, as we can attract increasingly significant funding, which has always been such a sore point, uh, you know, living along on bare survival budgets for so long. Uh, as we can attract a significant funding that wants to invest in the field, that's when I think we take the next leap. Yes, to all that. And to me, it's about the individual teaching artists claiming that identity. And I think about the independent conversations I've had with different people, whether that's an Inuit tattoo artist in Alaska, talking about how part of their work is within the teaching artistry realm, or a chanter, um, a native Hawaiian chanter talking about that as part of her work. And I think the more that we embrace and broaden the concepts of what a teaching artist is, that that's a name teaching artistry that some people don't even want to use. They want to use different, you know, artivist, activist. There's so many different words, but I think for us to kind of come together to claim that as one identity that we can utilize to continue to get organized, to continue to build a guild, to continue to fight for each of us to be able to um, to use our imaginations in this time of intense struggle and pain that we're going through in our world for us to be able to realize that teaching artists can be part of that solution and have this, as Eric is saying, that flagship to be able to come to us, join us in this landscape so that we can push together a change so that teaching artists can be part of the solution. 
finger snaps to that. And I will just say, Miko, like I have been so impressed during your time as executive director at how you have knitted together and built connections among communities of teaching artists nationally in places where neither TAG nor ATA had relationships in the past. And I feel like a lot, a lot of the excitement that I have around TAG in recent years has been seeing that happen under your leadership and and that's what i had always wanted to see when we first sat around your brunch table and talked about this should be a national guild like i i wanted to see i wanted to see that that connection of such a fragmented field and i i believe like that started to come to fruition under your leadership miko I agree with everything everyone said, and I like wrote down two notes for myself on a sticky, which would, one was around community and connection, and I feel like the kind of relationships that TAG has woven and brought together and created spaces for, um, which is often like intangible sometimes and like, right, like hard to summarize, has been really powerful and kind of starting to knit together the feel that people have talked about. Um, and I think the other thing that stands out for me is that TAG has provided a it's not the only platform, but it's like a real platform from teaching artists leadership and voice that's like dedicated to teaching artists and what they're doing. Um, and, I, and I think that feels really important to me. Like, I think there's things that it's made possible. Like, you know, recently there have been like the Insight Insight blog, right? And then there, um, there was a blog around sort of what it took for a group of teaching artists to unionize. And there's been like, panels on that too that TAG has hosted and like that's something I can't imagine another organization like organization hiring organization doing right um I think there's a lot of um it's tricky but I think having spaces like that that are really about like teaching artist leadership um and activism not just like for the field as a whole but for themselves as a community too is really really important and it's a space that I think is pretty unique that TAG provides all right, y'all, again, we could just keep talking. I have like 20 more questions that we could ask, but we don't have the time. Um, I, I do want to say, though, um, that uh, I'm really excited about where TAG can support the field uh, in terms of where it wants to go, where it should go, where it can go. Um, and the fact that you representative of a larger group of folks um like what a what a gift you all are to this field and to this work um so i personally would like to thank you for the work that you've done already the work that i know you're gonna do and the know the work that you're gonna inspire others to do i wanted to thank you courtney because you are also providing a voice for teaching artists with this podcast and appreciate that you i mean this is the only podcast that's focused on teaching artists and so you are definitely a pillar in the community so thank you for doing your work too thank you for listening to episode 63 act one of teaching artistry with courtney j body looking back to look forward collective field building join us next time for act two this podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the director of creative content. Jono Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. 
Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Find us on Instagram at Teaching Artistry Podcast and now on YouTube. Check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud and Spotify, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now.